Welcome to Frontline Gastroenterology and the podcast for the Twitter debate entitled Nutrition in Inflammatory Bowel Disease, What to Do in Theory and Practice. My name is Dr. Manmeet Mathru and I'm a gastroenterology registrar in London. I'm delighted to introduce Dr. Richard Hansen, the consultant paediatric gastroenterologist with a specialist interest in inflammatory bowel disease and nutrition, who co-hosted the debate with Ms. Joan Gavin, paediatric gastroenterology dietitian. Welcome, Dr. Hansen, and thank you for hosting a most informative debate. Thank you. So what strategies do you use to select the right nutritional therapy for the individual patient? Uh, Well, it's fairly simple, actually. In um, paediatric practice, the majority of nutritional therapy for Crohn's disease uh, comes in the form of exclusive enteral nutrition, which is given as an exclusive liquid diet for usually between six and eight weeks, which often varies uh, depending on the centre. And that is given orally in a lot of cases and needs nasogastric support in about a half of um, patient groups. And most centres will support that with one or two little cheats where they allow sugar-free sweets or uh, particular drinks or milkshake flavourings. But the therapies themselves are actually very simplistic. Excellent. So that comes on to my second question, actually, that um, we find implementing nutritional interventions can be challenging. What are your top tips for engaging patients to enhance compliance? Okay, so we have, uh, so in Glasgow, we have a pathway for uh, what's expected of patients and also what's expected of the multidisciplinary team. And I think this is one of the strengths of the teams within paediatrics is that we tend to have access to paediatric nurses, uh, paediatric dietitians, and also the clinical members of staff who support the patient and have specific roles within the journey. So it's very important that the overall nutrition is looked at, that the calorie requirements of the nutritional um, therapy match what the patient needs and what their expenditure of calories is and also that they have pathways for support in terms of who they contact if they're having problems with the nutrition, uh, if they have questions, if they're feeling hungry, which can be a problem as the disease gets better, and and how people are supported through that, and also how how to access the service if people are failing. So we'll often start people, our own exposure, uh, sorry, our own practices to give people tasters of the nutritional therapy around the time of diagnosis to get a feel for whether or not they'd be able to drink it, and then start them on drinking it if if it looks like that's a possible course, and then have an early contact to see how that's going. And if the drinking isn't working very well, then we would arrange an admission, we'd put a nasogastric tube down, and we'd support people in training for nasogastric feeds so that they can sort of seamlessly step over in that method of giving nutrition. But it's quite labour-intensive, and it does need a lot of support from the team and a very clear pathway about what's required. And I think that's one of the reasons that... Uh, one of the reasons for success in centres who do this well and perhaps one of the things that's a, a bit more challenging in, in other spheres of practice, perhaps particularly adult medicine, but obviously that's not my own expertise. And you touched upon the importance of the multidisciplinary team in these particular patient groups. Uh, do you think it's possible to manage them effectively without um, a well-set-up multidisciplinary team? I think it's very difficult because you know each team member brings different things to the table, um, which is the case in all spheres of medicine, I suppose. And you know, so for instance, I I know a lot about how these therapies work. I know a lot about what I'm expecting to see clinically, and uh, you know what markers of remission I'll be looking for. But you know, I'm by no means expert enough to work out someone's calorie requirements and to give them a prescription that meets their needs and be able to adjust that you know, in a rapid enough way. Uh, I'd find that very difficult, particularly with a busy clinical workload. So having dietitians to support that is very important. And likewise, having you know, IBD nursing team who are available and accessible to families and are able to give them 
uh, advice and support and be a point of contact for them is very important. So I think, you know, the, the key to success of nutritional therapy and IBD, you know, from my perspective at least, is having that kind of multifaceted MDT that all have very specific defined roles that are there to support the patient and the implementation of this therapy. Going on from that, you know, I think the role of the, the medic in this is actually quite limited. You know, our, our role is as a diagnostician and to say, you know, this is what it looks like, this looks like luminal Crohn's disease, we suggest exclusive intranutrition and then the MDT almost steps in and takes that up and, and runs with that until you're ready to review whether someone is in remission or not at, you know, at a number of weeks into the into the treatment. I guess it's quite an efficient way of streamlining services as well and all we're all practicing with resource constraints actually. Um it kind of makes sense to sort of streamline pathways. Yeah, I think that's true. And, you know, when you look at other areas in the world where these therapies are not used as much, for instance, North America, um, I think some of that is driven by the fact that giving someone, you know, the alternative therapy, which would be prednisolone, um, is perhaps simpler and is also more of a medical model. You write a prescription, you give someone the the drug, they go away and take that, and then you come back, they're better or they're not better. You don't need quite so much infrastructure. Um, and the two are roughly equivalent in terms of efficacy rates, but certainly from a, and this is important in pediatrics, the nutritional method of inducing remission helps with nutritional rehabilitation, it helps with mucosal healing, and very importantly for us, doesn't really have the side effects that are associated with steroids. Mm. That comes on to nicely my next question. What are the challenges in adolescent IBD and how do you manage the transition to adult services? Adolescent IBD is probably the kind of bread and butter of what we do in paediatric gastroenterology. You know, as I'm sure you know, the uh, first peak of IBD incidence happens in late childhood into early adolescence. So an awful lot of our patients coming through the door with IBD are in the adolescent age range. So it's almost normal for IBD patients to be adolescents. And of course, that comes with a lot of difficulties because it's an important time of change in life in terms of you know, social interactions with peers, changes in schools, exams that come up, and also in terms of growth and pubertal development. And of course, IBD comes along smack in the middle of that and upsets all of those processes. And one of the ones that we care about uh, in particular in paediatric gastroenterology is issues related to growth and pubertal development, which can often be reduced uh, or delayed uh, with regards to active inflammatory bowel disease and inflammation. So we uh, we think hard about that and we monitor these things carefully and then we look for how uh, disease response in terms of symptoms and more objective markers respond to our therapies, but we also look carefully at how growth responds and what happens to puberty around that time. So those are those are important aspects for us in particular and again are slightly different perhaps to to things that are you know priorities within adult gastroenterology thinking about transition so that's a specific uh, requirement that our teenage population have because they, they can't stay with us forever you know within the pediatric service our, our setting is inappropriate for that probably they get a bit fed up with the cartoon characters on the walls and uh, we have maybe got a tendency to be a, a little bit more uh, paternalistic and patronising. I don't know, maybe not. So what most centres do is a transition process where we move people gently and gradually over to uh, adult medicine. So our own setting uh, in, in Glasgow involves starting to bring teenagers in on their own before uh, seeing them with their parents. So they come in to the first part of the appointment on their own and then their parents join them afterwards. So they're starting to gain some ownership of their own disease and its management. 
And then we do two joint appointments, one in the children's hospital with the adult team where the paediatricians do most of the talking and do most of the consultation, but the uh, teenager and their family get to meet the adult team for really the first time. And then we reverse that within the adult setting and um, at that stage the adult team really take the lead and the paediatric team are kind of there to say goodbye, I suppose, and to support the family through that last stage. And then after that they, they, they go into adult routine practice. So that's our own model in Glasgow. There are other models uh, around the country, and I'm aware that you know some of the centres in London run a young adult IBD clinic. So the same two teams, the paediatricians and the adult teams, contribute to a joint clinic and are seeing people in a shared manner over a longer period, over a number of years. And you know, there's strengths and weaknesses to all of these models and, and obviously resource implications as well. So I think what's important is to have a robust pathway about how transition is managed in an individual centre and and also to be able to look at that with specific patients in mind um, and be able to modify that as needed depending on where they're going to university or where if they live on an island and have to fly down to see you then perhaps going through that whole process might not be the most efficient use of everyone's time so you know those are the kind of thoughts regarding transition but it's a challenging group of patients and, and, and but also a great joy to look after. And so what are the key things to close with that you think adult gastroenterologists can learn from paediatric IBD practice? So I think, you know, I have to say, going back to your question on transition, uh, I always find my transition clinics to be a great joy. And uh, we do learn from each other just in, in that small number of patients that we see in an individual clinic. And we have got slightly different views about how we address things and and how we practice and you know, suggestions often come out in that process and transition either from the paediatrician or the adult gastroenterologist just based on the different spheres of practice. I suppose exclusive nutrition is the the one thing that marks out paediatric practice as being quite different. I'm aware that adult gastroenterologists uh, do use it and they're increasingly using it and I think it is successful probably in adults but some of the reasons that it's not as successful may relate to not having the parent figure to kind of tell you what's happening and to guide it and to really be paternalistic in the, in the strictest definition of the word and making sure that the therapy as you expect it to happen is happening. Mm-hmm. And obviously that's not the case in adults. And that focus on nutrition and growth and rehabilitation uh, that comes with needing to put people back onto normal growth and normal development uh, from us is perhaps at the fore in paediatric practice, whereas symptom control and more objective markers of remission uh, might be more important indicators in, in adult practice. I suppose what we learn from adult colleagues is uh, most of the therapies that we uh, that come down to paediatric practice are tested and tried and used in adults and then they come forward into paediatric trials and then after a number of years, often as long as seven or eight years, they, they come down and are used in routine paediatric practice. So we we, we often ask our adult colleagues about what drugs they use and what experience they have in using them and how they can guide us in, in developing, you know, the new biologicals, for instance. Uh, and, of course, you know, going to adult gastroenterology meetings gives us a good indicator of what's happening and what's coming next. So. Well, thank you very much, Dr Hansen, for a very interesting debate and topical discussion. As well as the podcast, a summary of this debate can be found on www.stroify.com forward slash frontgastro underscore BMJ stroke frontline training. April's debate will be led by Dr. Gelton Meta and is entitled Acute on Chronic Liver Failure, All You Need to Know. Please follow at frontgastro underscore BMJ with the hashtag FGDebate. Thank you very much. Thank you.